You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 10th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio, The Globalist in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, the cost to Gaza's civilians is far too high. Antony Blinken issues a warning to Israel. We believe the submission against Israel to the International Court of Justice distracts the world from all of these important efforts. And moreover, the charge of genocide is meritless. We'll examine the delicate path the US Secretary of State has to tread on a trip to the Middle East. Also coming up, we look ahead to a meeting between Ukraine and NATO, asking what can be achieved, and Finland's unlikely survival against the Soviet Union. Are there any lessons for today? Finland then and Ukraine now are rather different societies and different countries, so they are not so easily comparable. Plus, we profile France's new Prime Minister, Gabriel Attal, and we ask how passengers will respond to Seoul's all-standing new metro system. That's coming up on The Globalist, live from London. Before we begin, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Armed, masked men have broken into a television studio in Ecuador and have interrupted a live programme, forcing staff to the floor and threatening them. Poland's former Interior Minister and Deputy Interior Minister have been arrested inside the Presidential Palace in Warsaw. And the boss of Boeing has said the firm must acknowledge its mistake after part of one of its aircraft fell off shortly after takeoff in the United States. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has warned that more needs to be done to get aid into Gaza and that the civilian cost of Israel's war with Hamas is too high. Secretary of State Blinken was speaking after a meeting with Israeli leaders. This is now his fourth trip to the country since the conflict began. Well, first, I'm joined now by the down the line from Jerusalem by Shana Lowe from the Norwegian Refugee Council. A very good morning to you, Shana. Good morning to you. Um, the, the call came from Anthony Blinken that Gazans displaced from the north of Gaza should be al- allowed back home because the fighting is now not as ferocious as it was. What information are you getting about the, the, the internal displacement of people inside Gaza? Well, about 85% of Gaza's uh, residents remain displaced uh, and and Israel has indicated that they will not allow any n- residents of the north to return and begin to rebuild their lives. Uh, this is the people people are running out of space in southern Gaza as Israel intensifies its its uh, hostilities uh, in central and southern Gaza. Fewer and fewer people have any place to go. More and more people are sleeping in the streets or in tents without shelter, unprotected, uh, as winter uh, continues here. And so what, what we're hearing is that people do want to return home. We have colleagues who would like to return to their homes, see what is salvageable, if there is anything left standing, and, and begin to rebuild their lives. Preventing Palestinians from returning to their homes uh, amounts to, to forcible transfer, a grave violation of international national humanitarian law. 
the, the, the way in which these Palestinians were displaced from northern Gaza was unlawful, and the fact that they continue to be prevented from returning home, uh, despite the fact that that fighting seems to have subsided um, or lessened in the north, uh, it continues to be a violation of international humanitarian law. What uh, you mentioned briefly the conditions that people are living living under, but just give us a, a bit more of an a, a sort of a, a more vivid picture of of what people are experiencing and how they are coping underneath Israeli bombardment. Uh, the people of Gaza have been incredibly resilient during the last three plus months um, and, and continue to, I think, be surprised themselves by what they are able to withstand. As I mentioned, you have about 85%, 1.9 million Palestinians displaced in the Gaza Strip. Many of those have been displaced multiple times as, as fighting has continued further south. Uh, people who have fled to the south seeking safety have found themselves bombarded and bombed in the south and in central Gaza, including some of NRC's own, where I work, our own staff. Uh, there is no safe place in Gaza. People are running out of food. The UN has has um, uh, is is on the alert for for famine. About a quarter of Gaza's population is at risk of starvation at this point because there simply is not enough aid or assistance coming in, um, and and the markets are not being replenished for people who do have cash to be able to buy um, to buy food for their families. On top of that, the infrastructure of Gaza has been destroyed. You have sewage in the streets. Diseases are spreading in these tightly packed um, sites hosting displaced persons. Uh, really, we've been talking for, for the last two months about a catastrophe, but every day it, it, we're continued to be surprised that, that things can only get worse. Uh, the aid is still not reaching those in need, particularly in northern Gaza. Israel has been denying uh, convoys seeking to bring medical supplies and assistance to the hospitals and pharmacies in northern Gaza. Uh, right now, we're really facing a, catastrophic a catastrophe on all levels, uh, food, shelter, clean water, uh, sanitation. Um, so when you hear the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, warning that more needs to be done to get aid into Gaza, how hopeful are you that his words will change something? You know, we appreciate any any efforts to get more aid in, but it's not about just the rhetoric. We need to see changes on the ground. We need to see opening of additional crossings. We need the, the restrictions that Israel has imposed on what can get in lifted. We need an international body to be screening the goods and remove that from, from Israel uh, because there are long delays and, and things that should be getting in uh, are getting denied. We've heard reports of things as simple as sleeping bags being denied entry because of the metal zippers on them. This is arbitrary. This is capricious. This is unjust for a, a civilian population of 2.3 million people who have suffered 95 days of, of continuous bombardment and, and hostilities to be denied basic necessities for their survival. I mean, it is just unconscionable. And we, we desperately need not just Secretary Blinken to be saying that more aid needs to be getting in, but we need to see the results of that. We need an increase in aid. We need a scaling up. And we need, an a we need access to all parts of Gaza. The only way that we as humanitarians can can truly serve, fulfill our, our duties and serve the people of Gaza and meet their needs is to have uninhibited access to all areas of Gaza. And the only way that that can be done is a permanent sustained ceasefire. We know that this conflict will not be solved 
through military means. It can only be resolved peacefully, and we need to to stop uh, with the destruction, stop with the senseless loss of, of innocent civilians. Uh, we have thousands of, of Palestinian children dead, uh, over 23,000 Palestinians uh, killed, uh, thousands more buried under the rubble, still not recovered. And, and we, the only way that we can really address this catastrophe is to put an end to the fighting. Shana Lowe, thank you so much for joining us on the line from uh, Jerusalem. Now, Scott Lu- Lucas is adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute University College Dublin. He was listening to that. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Emma. I mean, you could you could hear the sense of exasperation in, in, in Shana's voice there. We need to see changes. We need an international body. The, the, you know, the, the way that this is being managed is absolutely arbitrary. One wonders whether that sense of exasperation is being shared by Anthony Blinken. Well, Anthony Blinken's statement yesterday, Emma, uh, was all show and no substance. I'll say that as an analyst. I'll say as an analyst that his words will do nothing to, in the short term, to limit the Israeli attacks across Gaza, especially in the center and in the south. His words will do nothing to bring aid into Gaza. As a person, what I'll tell you is, is I not only share that sense of exasperation, um, I'm almost in a sense of exhaustion over the failure of the United States to do anything to limit uh, what is a mass killing, mainly of civilians in Gaza, with more than 85% of them displaced. What can he say or do, though? I mean, he has repeated this message so many times that more aid needs to be done. And and efforts have been made by the United States to try to get Israel to to tone down its military operation. But it it seems as if Israel is following its own course. Well, let's first of all establish what the practical effect of what he said yesterday was in terms of why it's ineffective and then say what he could have said. What he said was effectively to give support for the broad rhetoric of the Israeli war cabinet, um, which is that Hamas must be eliminated. And of course, he said it specifically, he said Hamas must be removed as a threat to Israeli security. And of course, that's the rationale Israel uses to continue the attacks, which are simply carpet attacks that hit civilians in terms of bombing, as well as hitting Hamas. So more than 250 Gazans were killed yesterday, and the large majority of them were civilians. Uh, There was very little aid that went into Gaza yesterday and the day before that, the day before that, because the Israelis have an ineffective veto over aid. Now, why is that? The U.S. had two points of leverage with the Israelis. The first is they could have supported a U.N. Security Council resolution, which called for a ceasefire, and which called for unrestricted aid into Gaza. The United States refused to do that last month. And indeed, they effectively said, you can only have a resolution that continues to maintain an Israeli veto on aid that goes into Gaza. Secondly, the United States could have restricted military assistance to Israel. But rather than restrict its military supplies to Israel, the United States has stepped up its military supplies to Israel including many thousands of unguided as well as guided bombs and artillery shells. In other words, the weapons that are being used to kill civilians in Gaza. Until Anthony Blinken, at least in private, presents some type of leverage which says the United States is clearly going to draw a line against Israel through either a call for a ceasefire and unrestricted aid and or limiting military assistance, the U.S. has no leverage. 
And his his words yesterday were all about the future. In the future, we could have a Palestinian state. In the future, we could have Israel normalization with the Arab states, avoiding the immediate question of that none of that is feasible. None of that is on the cards unless Israel halts its military operations. Shane Loma a moment ago mentioned the fact that the military operation not only needs to stop, but this needs to be a negotiated um, conclusion. This is the only way that this is going to happen. There have been suggestions that there is a regional path out of this involving the Saudis, recognition of Israel in, in return for recognition of a Palestinian state. I mean, these seem to be incredibly difficult ideas to grapple with, but it does seem to be an idea that the concerted effort could change things. No, look, Emma, again, I'm going to repeat, the Israeli normalization with Saudi, which has been a long-term U.S. objective, which was being pursued before October 7th, that disappeared on October 7th initially with Hamas's mass killings inside Israel and then Israel's mass killings inside Gaza. And for Blinken to say that's the way out of this, Israel to normalize his relations with Saudi Arabia, completely ignores diverts what is happening in Gaza. Here is what the two issues in Gaza, and Shana referred to these, that have not been addressed and that have to be addressed on a regional basis. First is, of course, you have to get not only the ceasefire, but you have to get a coordinated plan to get assistance to those more than 2 million Gazans who have been displaced from their homes. But Israel will not even allow Gazans to return to their homes in the north of the Strip until all hostages are released by Hamas. Secondly, you've got to talk about who governs, who provides public services in Gaza. And at this point, Israel is vetoing any viable Palestinian group that could actually oversee a restoration, a minimal amount of security, as well as basic services. They will not allow the Palestinian Authority to go in and rule it. They have not proposed another group. They have said maybe a multinational force can go in and provide security, but the Arab states will not go in and provide that force to provide security unless you have a clear political plan in terms of running Gaza on a day-to-day basis. Scott Lucas, thank you so much for joining us on the line. And also thanks to Shana Lowe from the Norwegian Refugee Council. You're listening to The Globalist. Join Monocle every weekday and let the briefing guide and inspire you through uncertain times, always keeping you ahead of the curve. Hear razor-sharp insights and opinion from Monocle's bureau and correspondents, as well as a lineup of brilliant minds from around the world. It's devolving to a point where we're at odds with each other instead of letting our political leaders do the dirty work, so to speak. Heavyweight coverage, no white noise, and always delivered with a smile. I think the grey areas lead to a lot of sort of awkward conversations, and there's nothing the English dislike more than awkward conversations. Keep your appointment with The Briefing every weekday at 1300 CET, noon in London and 7am in New York City, here on Monocle Radio. a.m. in Kyiv, 7.15 a.m. here in London. Representatives from Ukraine are holding a meeting with officials from NATO later as Russia's invasion continues. The gathering of the so-called NATO-Ukraine Council is in reaction to a recent recent upsurge in attacks from Russia that have hammered cities across Ukraine, killing dozens of people. Well, I'm joined by Jenny Mathers, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at Aberystwyth University. A very good morning to you, Jenny. 
Good morning. So just explain to us, I've mentioned a, a moment ago this recent upsurge in attacks from Russia, but that is the context of, of this meeting, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So this meeting is actually being called on Ukraine's um, sort of initiative. Uh, and one of the interesting aspects of this NATO-Ukraine Council, which is actually quite new, only created last year, is that it makes Ukraine uh, an equal partner uh, in this relationship. And so Ukraine can call meetings, uh, Ukraine can set the agenda as well as as NATO. Just explain to us a little bit, therefore, I mean, why this meeting is being called now. Yeah. So Ukraine is asking NATO to come together and discuss urgently the need for a steady supply of um, anti-aircraft and anti-missile and anti-drone weapons uh, to protect uh, Ukraine from these barrages of, of Russian attacks through through drones and missiles. Um, and you know, we 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 believe that one of Russia's motivations for these very uh, increased and, and intense attacks lately has been to exhaust Ukrainian air defenses. And so clearly, they are under pressure. Um, and this is a way of of Ukraine saying, look, you know, we are we are expending what we have uh, for for vital reasons, but we need more, and we need NATO to really step up and ensure that we do not run short, uh, because it's not only in our interest to keep Ukraine from from being attacked in this way, but also to prevent uh, the chances of these kind of Russian drones and missiles reaching NATO territory perhaps by accident. The the issue here, though, is the fact that, that, that NATO is only the representative of its member states and it will have to go back to various member states saying you need to step up with your, with your support for Ukraine. And this is domestically becoming hugely problematic in so many countries. Um, it is. I think, you know, as, as the war continues, then we see the emergence of more and more internal domestic pressures within NATO member states about, you know, how the money that they have should be spent, how much support for Ukraine can they afford to, do they wish to continue to make. Um, but I think paradoxically, the intense Russian attacks that we've seen, you know, over the past week or so, have in some ways motivated and galvanized some NATO member states to say, actually, we need to do more. And, and Germany is an example of this, really sort of pushing hard, not only for it, its own uh, increased contributions, but also for other, other European states, other NATO members saying, look, we really need to come together now. Just tell us a little bit about how much this is still NATO's war, given the fact that, I mean, you mentioned a moment ago, um, the idea of a missile straying into NATO territory and this and and this whole concept and and an idea of collective defense does there seem very much as if NATO is still the the sort of the the, the great bastion that can actually protect so many countries and indeed protect Ukraine from Russia well i think NATO certainly has the capability to protect its own members and the you know the the extent of of NATO member state military capacity and preparedness and resolve, I think to to protect their own members is um, largely unquestioned. There are some some issues, especially around you know a, a possible future Trump presidency and and so on. But but nevertheless, at the moment, the the willingness and the ability to protect their own member states is is not really in question. Um, the question is about that extended deterrence, that extended protection over Ukraine and how much support NATO can and will give and how far it goes. So at the moment, the extent has been training uh, of Ukrainian uh, 
soldiers. It has been a lot of liaison, a lot of financial support, a lot of uh, military equipment and supplies, um, a lot of advice, a lot of close coordination, um, and a lot of support in terms of diplomacy and rhetoric. But of course, NATO member state soldiers on the ground fighting side by side with Ukraine is, is a step beyond which NATO has so far been willing to, to go. The difficulty is uh, that were NATO's um, efforts and help to lessen in any way, major questions would be asked about NATO's usefulness. Well, this is true. And this is one of the issues that NATO is facing is about credibility and about the the appearance and the perception of its abilities and its willingness and its resolve. And so this is one of the many calculations that NATO leaders are making in terms of their um, their actions in relation to, to this war and to Russia's aggression against Ukraine is you know, the practical matters of how much they do, but also how is that perceived by Russia? How is that perceived by other NATO members and by other potential, um, you know, threats that, that are out there in the world? And just tell us a little bit more about another um, enormous international body which is struggling with its uh, support of Ukraine. There is a EU summit on the 1st of February. There is the suggestion that Hungary could lift its veto over aid to Ukraine. Um, how much would that change things? Um, I think it would make a lot of things much easier for the EU and for Ukraine. So, you know, in December, um, basically Hungary vetoed a huge uh, 50 billion uh, euro aid package that the EU was prepared to provide to Ukraine that would have extended over several years into the future and given Ukraine a lot of uh, confidence and certainty about, you know, the, the predictability of the amount of money that was coming and where it was coming from. So there's been a lot of pressure on Viktor Orban and Hungary to try and reverse this situation. And this, this summit, uh, EU summit that's been called for the 1st of February is sort of an emergency summit, which is um, an attempt, uh, particularly led by Germany, to try and put pressure on Hungary to try and find a way forward uh, so that Hungary withdraws that veto. And there are suggestions that Hungary has uh, put forward a, a possible uh, compromise position, shall we say. Um, and, you know, this is one of the, the, the big questions about the maneuvering and the negotiation and the compromising that might have to happen. Um, to to get the EU to that space where they could have a unanimous uh, decision in favour of, of this budget package. Jenny Mathers, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme, we look at Finland's resilience over the years against its neighbours and what lessons we might take on today. Finland then and Ukraine now are rather different societies and different countries, so they are not so easily comparable. Stay with us on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me down the line from Istanbul is the journalist Ruth Michelson. Good morning, Ruth. Morning, Emma. How's Istanbul looking at the moment? Uh, a little bit cold and wet, unfortunately. That's a shame. It's normally something else, so possibly good for you to have a change. Right, let's find out what's happening in the papers. Um, widespread um, coverage of these astonishing pictures coming out of Ecuador. 
Absolutely. Really uh, disturbing scenes from a public television station in Guayaquil in Ecuador. Um, description in The Guardian that um, heavily armed gangsters stormed the studio of a major television station, toting pistols, shotguns, machine guns, grenades and sticks of dynamites, sticks of dynamite, excuse me, um, and that the cameras are still rolling, that people could see on camera um, as the uh, journalists lay down on the floor and there was someone yelling, don't shoot before the signal cut out. Um, mention of the head of the television channel saying she was in the um, control room, um, talking to the AP and saying, I'm still in shock. Everything has collapsed. All I know is that it's time to leave this country and go very far away. Um, coverage um, uh, mentioning uh, that in El Universo, uh, Ecuador's largest newspaper, and then more kind of political context in places like um, the New York Times talking about um, how the president, uh, Daniel Noboa, had declared a state of emergency during the day um, and said that the country was in a state of internal armed conflict, declaring 22 gangs as terrorist organizations. It was quite an astonishing uh turn of events because when you see an event like that unfolding in front of your eyes and people with masks and sticks of dynamite you don't quite believe what you're seeing um, but this article in the New York Times does actually quite accurately lay out just the extent of which Ecuador is facing a, a crisis Absolutely I mean uh, this it, really really disturbing scenes and, and you know pointing to as you say in the New York Times um, the they mentioned the various other incidents that happened at the same time across the country um, at, while uh, the Ecuadorian authorities saying that um, basically there had been prison breaks um, from from uh, various gangs, um, inmates escaping from prisons, um, at least two prisons, um, and that this is coming at a, as a time when um, uh, the Ecuadorian president has said that he wanted to cut uh, to crack down on these gangs essentially, and that uh, there's been pushback from the gangs themselves, accusing him of essentially starting a war. The interesting thing is, is a few years ago, Ecuador was seen as a comparatively stable and steady place. But um, it's all to do with the neighbours next door in Colombia, isn't it? Well, I mean, there's certainly some uh, some mention of that, that there's um, relationship with, with drug gangs. Um, and that we saw that, for example, Peru closed their border with Ecuador following this incident. Um, so it, as you say, it's something that has kind of raised the alarm. Um, we saw that um, the State Department, the US State Department spokesperson for Latin America said that this was extremely alarming. Um, let's move on to the latest story uh, involving uh, Donald Trump's um, claims that he is immune from charges that he plotted to overturn the 2020 election. How has um, the, one of two court appearances uh, he's expected at this week, how have they been covered? Uh, with great scepticism by the media, as, as yeah, uh, you would imagine, of his um, of his defence that he is immune from charges to overturn the 2020 election, um, the New York Times mentioning that a federal appeals court in Washington expressed deep scepticism about Donald Trump's claims. Um, the rather interesting thing is that the New York Times notes that um, Trump attended the hearing in person, even though he was not required to be there. Um, some other coverage in the New York Times mentioning, as you say, this is his second court appearance this week. Um, and this is happening less than a week before uh, the primary, uh, the, the primary, excuse me, in Iowa. Um, and so they sort of mentioned that, you know, less than a week before uh, this key primary. 
um, Donald Trump's schedule is going to Washington for an appeals court hearing, then going into Iowa for a Fox News town hall event today, and then going back to court tomorrow in New York. There is this men, uh, this aspect mentioned in the New York Times, isn't there, Ruth, about the fact that um, we're now talking about not only about immunity, but um, the Supreme Court is going to be is already hearing another question about whether Donald Trump can be removed from state ballots. One very much gets the sense that everything that Donald Trump uh, does in terms of his attempts to uh, reach the White House again in November will be done through law courts more than if, if, as much as done through a ballot box. Well, there's, I mean, there's a fair question about that. And I mean, I think that's why there was that, in, you know, the New York Times pointed out he went to this hearing yesterday, even though he wasn't required to be there, which suggests that uh, for him, these court appearances form part of his campaign. Um, that's the same story uh, in the New York Times, where, by the way, they mentioned that he sent right uh, far right surrogates like um, Marjorie Taylor Greene to Iowa in his in his place. But it suggests that, you know, he thinks showing up in court is part of the campaign that, um, that for for president. And it, you know, it gives him an opportunity to represent himself in a way that his supporters might find favourable. Uh, let's move on to another story about NASA and trips to the moon. And there's a delay. <laughs> yes. So um, human beings will have to wait a little bit longer um, to watch people get, watch astronauts get closer to the moon or to land on the moon. Um, so the, so NASA announced yesterday that Artemis II, this is the first American mission to send astronauts close to the moon in more than 50 years, um, is going to take place um, in September 2025. This is a mission to apparently swing around the moon without landing there, which um, sounds nausea-inducing, but important for science. Um, and uh, that this is then going to uh, cause delays to the subsequent mission, um, Artemis 3, which is set to land two astronauts on the moon now um, around September 2026. There's the, uh, the the reliance on the private sector, which is a recurring theme now in, in, in space travel and space exploration, and SpaceX. Um, Elon Musk's company keeps being mentioned, doesn't it? Uh, yes, absolutely. So this is uh, AP mention of this, that um, right after NASA's announcement, um, about an hour later, there was a Pittsburgh a company based in Pittsburgh called Astrobotic um, that had been uh, aiming for a lunar landing on the 23rd of February. They abandoned their own attempt um, to land a spacecraft on the moon because of a fuel leak. Um, and that, as you say, SpaceX's um, Starship Mega Rocket, amazing or not particularly creative name, um, uh, is essentially one of the companies that NASA is relying on, um, one of these private companies that NASA is relying on um, for the Artemis moon landing efforts. Ruth Michelson, thank you so much for telling us about a mega rocket. The time here in London is just nudging 7.31. Uh, time now on The Globalist to have a quick look at what else we're keeping an eye on today. Armed, masked men have broken into a television studio in Ecuador and have interrupted a live programme, forcing staff to the floor and threatening them. A 60-day state of emergency began in Ecuador on Monday after a convicted gang leader vanished from his prison cell. 
China's defence ministry has warned that the country will never compromise on the issue of Taiwan. The statement has been made as Beijing and Washington hold their first military talk since 2021 and comes just days ahead of pivotal elections in Taiwan, which could push the island further towards or away from Beijing. Poland's former interior minister and deputy interior minister have been arrested inside the presidential palace in Warsaw. The men were sentenced to two years jail last month for abuse of power when they led an anti-corruption office in 2007, but they refused to recognise the judgment. And the boss of Boeing has said the firm must acknowledge its mistake after part of one of its aircraft fell off shortly after takeoff in the US. Boeing's president and chief executive David Calhoun told employees at its US factory where 737s are assembled that we're going to approach it with 100 and complete transparency every step of the way. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. in Helsinki, 7.32 here in London. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Russia's war in Ukraine has had consequences far beyond Kyiv, leaving many of its neighbours on high alert. One such nation is recent NATO joiner Finland, who knows a thing or two about encroachment attempts by Moscow. Kimo Rentola is a professor emeritus of political history at the University of Helsinki and the author of How Finland Survived Stalin, From Winter War to Cold War. His book is a dramatic and timely account of Stalin's failed invasion of Finland in 1939, and the decade of wars and fraught relations that have followed. Kimo stopped by our studios earlier to talk to Monocle's Andrew Muller about his book and the Nordic Republic's unlikely survival. Andrew began by asking him about the Winter War and how such a small nation like Finland managed to defeat the Soviet Union. I think the Soviets were badly prepared. In a similar way that Putin was badly prepared for Ukraine, they thought they would automatically win in a very short time. That's why they made several mistakes. And the weather, of course, was, uh, was a factor. It was winter time, and politically the Russians had uh, also very bad preparations because in the negotiations they wanted only transfer the border. Mm. But when they attacked, they put up puppet government for Finland, which means the whole country. And that united the Finns. And everybody saw that uh, it's now life or death. It's uh, the total. It's not about some islands and some uh, mm. 20 kilometers transfer of the border, but the whole country. So the Finns fought. And at that time, most Finnish men were used to work outside in winter, winter conditions. That was a great factor in the Winter War. I mean, that comparison between Ukraine has been made quite a lot over the last 20 months or so. But when you see, given your expertise in the Finnish Winter War, how Ukraine has defended itself, do you feel like Ukraine has seen Finland as a bit of an inspiration? Probably, yes. But uh, also, of course, the conditions were very different. And I think what was similar and comparable the Finnish situation then and the Ukrainian situation now is uh, the Russian policy. Mm. And the Russians make several similar mistakes in both countries. But Finland and Ukraine 
Finland then and Ukraine now are other different societies and different countries, so they are not so easily comparable. I mean, the book focuses in particular on this period from the beginning of World War Two to the 1950s, the, the period during which Stalin was in charge in the Soviet Union. How serious do you think he ever got about actually annexing or conquering Finland and making it part of the Soviet Union? His idea which he repeated several times, at least three times, was that first he tried to get the whole thing, the whole Finland under his control and and probably part of the Soviet Union or or later people's democracy like Poland or or somebody else. And, And then difficulties arose and both by the stubborn resistance of the Finns and then by international factors which were becoming more difficult for the Soviets and Stalin all three times he made a decision to turn to satisfy with much less than he at first had tried to obtain and I think the main difference between Stalin and Putin now is that Putin doesn't have this capacity to to stop this period you write about, though, I guess sets up Finland's post-World War II method of dealing with the Soviet Union and later with Russia, this strange foreign policy which became known as Finlandization. Are there still any lessons there for anybody else in how to deal with Russia or has that era now just completely passed? Is, is Russia, well, in the same way that Putin is possibly le- less flexible than Stalin, is Russia actually less flexible now than the Soviet Union? Um, might be so that I think the situation was rather unique between Finland and the Soviet Union after the Second World War because from the war the Soviets got respect of Finland. It was different from their attitude to mm. Estonians or Poles or Hungarians or anybody who, who were not situated in, in such a lucky place that Finland was. We didn't have the Germany the other side. And then also the Soviets respected Finns and then the Finns had got self-confidence in the war. So that the basic thinking was that if we were able to survive the war, why couldn't we survive the peace also with the Soviets? So they were willing to deal with them. That was also affected by the fact that the Finns lost a very small number of civilian population in the war because it was not occupied and no foreign armies went over to country as in other countries which created a great bitterness against for instance the soviet army they raped the women and and destroyed properties and and things like that killed many people but in finland this didn't happen in in such a scale and so it was possible to get popular support for this kind of foreign policy which was deemed necessary after the war so that we deal with the Soviets. I mean, the book prompts irresistible comparisons between that period and this period. And and obviously, last year, we see Finland at last make this enormous decision to abandon its own way of dealing with Russia to a large extent and actually become a member of NATO. But when you measure today against particularly this extremely uh, febrile period your book describes. What's different now in 2022? Because it's not like in the decades before 2022, Russia had never attacked or invaded any other European countries. It did it pretty frequently. Why do you think Finland thought, OK, this is different? It was such a big attack 
It, it was bigger than the occupation of Czechoslovakia or even the war in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is a rather distant country mm. also in the other side. So uh, it was probably thought in Finland that uh, Afghanistan is in different series of states as compared to Finland. This was a big war. And, and then also uh, Putin said before the war that he wants that the NATO doesn't expand eastwards anymore. And the Finns thought that it's not Putin who who can prohibit us becoming members of NATO. I think in practice it was Putin who decided that we became members of NATO by attacking Ukraine. That was Kimo Rentala there speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. Kimo's book, How Finland Survived Stalin from Winter War to Cold War, is out now. You with The Globalist. Now, France has a new prime minister at 34 years old. Gabriel Attal is the youngest politician to occupy the office. He's France's first gay prime minister and he's also got a very difficult job taming a political system that is deadlocked. Nabila Ramdani is a French journalist and author of Fixing France, How to Repair the Broken Republic. She joins me now. Good morning, Nabila. Good morning, Emma. So, Monsieur Attal is young, he's gay and he's more popular than the president. Yes, he is all that. And I have to say his appointment as uh, the new prime minister of France is very much part of a wider government reshuffle that saw Macron uh, effectively sack his prime minister, Elizabeth Bourne. I mean, the convention is that prime ministers offer their resignation, but the reality is that Bourne was definitely fired. And the idea is to inject new energy, if you like, in a failing administration, which is, it has to be said, having a difficult time in office without a parliamentary majority for the president's uh, Renaissance party and in the context of uh, challenging European parliamentary elections ahead and the Paris Summer Olympics. And therefore, the appointment of a youthful uh, 34-year-old prime minister to head a revamped government. And as you said, it makes uh, Attal France's youngest prime minister in the country's history. He's also the first openly gay prime minister. Now, clearly, France is traditionally hugely uh, socially conservative. And in the past, there would be no possibility of an openly gay politician uh, challenging for high office. But Attal's appointment as prime minister uh, shows that this has changed to a certain extent. But of course, the biggest test is the kind of nationwide vote that would happen in the presidency. Uh, There has never been a woman president of France and all previous incumbents have been white men from pretty much the same social background. So in terms of social change, an openly gay prime minister would be seen as a step in the right direction, if you like, but by no means proof that France is now completely relaxed with having politicians from every type of background. Because in absolutely practically every other sense, um, Gabriel Attal is being accused by the the, the opponents um, of Emmanuel Macron and Monsieur Attal of being a mini-me. I mean, not only do they sort of look a bit the same because they have the same love of a, of a slim cut dark blue suit they went to the, all the right schools and indeed they have this 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 shared lack of core ideology they are both pragmatists Absolutely. I mean, um, uh, Gabriel Attal is often compared uh, to, to Macron, um, uh, not least of all because the, the way they, they look, it has to be said, uh, they both uh, have um, 
you know, that clean cut boy next door look about them, which can work very well in a socially uh, conservative country uh, like France. Um, um, Emmanuel, um, Emmanuel, <laughs> Gabriel Attal, <laughs> um, in terms of, of background, you know, as far as his political background is concerned, summarizing his political background is remarkably easy because there's no great backstory beyond a very predictable career enjoyed by a young man from a very settled uh, bourgeois background. And straight away, uh, critics argue that this kind of profile doesn't sit very well with the current mood in a divided country where people regularly take to the streets to complain about social and economic uh, injustices. Uh, Atal's early ambition when he was uh, a very little boy uh, was to be a Hollywood star. And that's because his late father uh, worked in the film industry. Um, he was also very extremely wealthy and he left uh, Gabriel uh, a large inheritance when he died in 2015. It was an early inheritance, so that obviously gave him a lot of confidence to do what he wanted in life. Um, very uh, at a very young age, he was, you know, um, making lots of appearances in the media, and because he was an extremely articulate and focused uh, young man, in the same way that Macron studied drama, for example, and had artistic ambitions himself. So that's one of the reasons they like to be in the spotlight. Um, Education-wise, Attal did everything right, moving through the private French education system to the best universities in Paris, including Sciences Po, which is an elite political graduate college that trains the ruling classes. And he caught the eye of all the politicians as, as soon as he started his career. Uh, for example, at the age of 23, he was already given a full-time job by the then health minister herself in her cabinet, who also happened to be the mother of one of his classmates. <laughs> Nabila Ramdani, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's head to Las Vegas now where Monocle's technology correspondent David Phelan is at the Consumer Electronics Show. Good evening, David. Good evening. Um, this is an absolutely enormous show. Every single year you go there and you have a rummage around. Um, how's it going where you are? It's been, I would say, the coldest CES I've uh, ever been to. It, it's been bitter, uh, the weather this year. But you're right. CES gets bigger every year. They introduced something last year, which they now have called the Loop, which is basically a tunnel with Teslas in it. If you need to get from one part of the show to another, you go into this tunnel, just get into the first Tesla, and they go round in a, a sort of 
continuing stream uh, and it, it, it's, it's rather a good uh, invention. It saves uh, at least 15 minutes of uh, struggling from one part of it to the next and weirdly the show seemed quite quiet at times in many of the halls but the one hall that really was busy was the one where all the cars were Polestar and uh, Mercedes and John Deere and uh, lots of other um, companies EV and uh, smart uh, cars seem to be a very big part of uh, the show this year. Now, the, the names you've just mentioned, the sort of like the Polestars and the Teslas are, are instantly recognisable. But the last time I thought about a John Deere, it was an enormous green tractor. So are you are you telling me that Las Vegas has large green ele- electric tractors driving around in them? When you say enormous, I don't think you could guess at the scale of the John Deere tractor that I saw. It was literally 30 feet tall. The wheel, the wheels were taller than I was. I've never seen anything quite like it. And yes, these are now a part of CES. Marvellous. Have you driven one? No, I haven't. I wasn't allowed anywhere near it. Three years ago, I did go in a tiny fire engine that Panasonic had been involved in. Um, I didn't get to drive it, but I got to sit in it. And and that was a a photographic delight. But um, that was as close as I would get. My God, that's better than anything you've ever told me about the the consumer (laughs) electronics show. You got to sit in a tiny fire engine. How exciting. Oh, gosh, I'm flying on a plane right now. I want to meet the big tractor. Right. Okay. for those of us who aren't buying tiny fire engines or enormous tractors, what what should we be looking out for this year? I heard about a fridge that tells you that you've got too much cheese there or something. <laughs> That's right. Um, artificial intelligence is everywhere. This, this is what the, the AI is is built into everything, according to um, everyone who's here at CES. That was sort of the same last year, but it's being um, pushed out more and more. And yes, you, you've mentioned uh, the fridge. It's a Samsung fridge. It has a camera inside, so it can see what food you have in it. You can, if you want to. I don't think anyone will really do this in numbers. Uh, put in the sell-by date into an app and so it can alert you when your food is going off and it can tell you what recipes you could come up with tonight uh, based on what food is actually in your fridge the idea is that you on your way home you don't know what you're going to have for dinner the fridge will tell you that I would absolutely love to try because I imagine that there'd be some sort of element of well some sort of judgmental element by the fridge going really (laughs) you've got nothing in there what are you thinking (laughs) or why have you got all those carrots yeah. Yes, exactly. It's salad again for you. It will certainly turn around and tell you. And a lot of it because you're go- it's going out of date. Uh, that's in- yes. that's incredible. Um, gosh, how awful. Um, <laughs> what else is happening in there that's possibly slightly less um, menacing? Well, um, Panasonic was had a very good CES. Um, it's a show that often has... TVs in abundance, and this was no different this year. Um, Panasonic is very big on OLED. One of the problems with OLED is it's not quite bright enough for a bright room. It's brilliant if all the lights are switched off, or perhaps even if you um, splash out on having an usherette to bring orange juice to you during the movie. But if you're just watching TV on an OLED screen, it's best to have dimmed lights. Their latest one is going to be brighter than any that they've had before and that's because it's got a a very 
clever system of uh, filters inside it uh, that uh, I don't quite understand how the micro lens array, when that's in place, the light gets brighter. That will really help. And interestingly, uh, also Panasonic for their TV um, made something of a breakthrough for perhaps a niche situation with the audio with something called pinpoint positioning. You can, the speakers at your command can be not not physically moved, but the, the way the speakers work can direct the sound into different parts of the room. So that's great if one person's watching TV and the other one just wants to read at the other end of the sofa. They're not going to have silence at their end of the sofa, but it, it is noticeable how the audio is directed away from them. That is something that sounds genuinely helpful. I mean, is, is there a sense that what people are, are actually inventing now are... Are, are solving those little those little little niggles in life that that we just need ironed out. Well, possibly, but you know, I would also mention that Invoxia, a, a, a great company, has come up with something called Mini Tails. It's a wearable de- device for dogs and cats, and it can recognise whether the dog is running or barking, and it can measure heart rate uh, with enough accuracy to be able to tell you if your pet has atrial fibrillation. Now, that any pet will tell you is certainly a, a solution to a problem that is serious, but I'm not sure that everyone else would have thought of it. And I'm not entirely sure that anybody needed to be told that your dog was barking or running. <laughs> if you're not there, to be able to record that data um, can give you um, a, an indication that perhaps the dog isn't very happy when when it's left at home, for example. And will you be bringing back for Macy, bringing <laughs> back from Macy, your, the, the Monocle's famous, lovely, beautiful dog? <laughs> I, yes, I wish I had, um, but yes, she, I'm afraid she's going to have to wait. It's not quite out yet. Tell me finally, with the, the issue of AI, the fact that you say it's absolutely everywhere. I mean, do we know who is? who is sort of putting all the data into AI now. I mean, there is that huge thing, isn't there, that I'm just thinking going back to the the, the Samsung fridge, that it's great that someone can tell me to make 37 variations of cheese fondue. But but the fact remains is that the the, the inputter has to have some sort of human knowledge of all this. Or is, or is, that, is that being discussed at all, David? Yes, I think more and more with AI... Certainly, one of the big questions is what do you train it on? Um, there are already publications that are allowing some of their articles to be used to train large language models, as they're called, uh, which are at the, the, the centre of AI. Um, and what was most interesting to me was in one of the press conferences, I, it was Samsung, um, one of the things that they're really concerned about is safety. Uh, Samsung has a system called Knox, which is the, the way that it keeps your phone safe. And so I've never seen this on stage before. A guy from the Knox team was there talking about how with the introduction of AI in their products, the guardrails that protect us humans from the rise of the machines are stronger than ever. That that was very interesting to me that, that anyone would need to actually say these things that, because solving problems is one thing, but keeping your data safe, keeping your phone safe is uh, a thing that seems to have taken new urgency with artificial intelligence. David Phelan in Las Vegas, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Oh, 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 
finally commuters in the South Korean capital of Seoul are going to need strong legs as the city's metro service has announced the introduction of carriages without seats. It's hoped that by making everyone stand up, there'll be less congestion en routes, which have seen a huge jump in the number of full carriages recently. Well, I'm joined in the studio by the author David Badanis. A very warm welcome back, David. Thank you. Now, at pushing more than six foot tall, do you welcome this this idea that you're going to hand, have to stand up? Because I imagine that your knees take up quite a lot of space when you sit down. That's exactly the case. They studied it and found that they'll get about 40% more people in. And I must say that I'm uh, grateful for your appreciation of the agonies that we tell people suffer in life. Okay, I'm glad to hear about this. So you can get 40% more people on an already packed underground carriage. This is a suggestion that Seoul is struggling under it with, with congestion, isn't it? Well, that, there, there you've nailed it. You can make these little changes around the edge, but you might wonder, why are there so many people there and so few uh, trains? The, the, sub, the, the tubes there are quite efficient, but um, uh, there might be other solutions. Uh, so, what, so just explain to us a little bit about how... Um, Human beings cope with this kind of thing because when you get on a tube here in London or in Paris or whatever, New York or whatever, you do have that option of sitting down. And there is not everybody does the same thing every single time. You know, are you tired? Is there a seat? Can you be bothered? The duration of your journey. To remove one option and quite a crucial option for people who don't do standing very much, how does that, could that possibly alter the kind of people who will be travelling? Totally. A, on a so uh, if, uh, uh, older people or pregnant people or um, uh, people who just get sore legs or indeed people who are unusually tall might be, oh, hesitant on the marginal trip. The other one is the uh, social setting. If you're sitting, you can really focus on a book or look away and you have a certain volume of air and space around you. If you're standing... As you pointed out, different cultures have different responses. In some places, you just avoid eye contact, like in a crowded lift or elevator. In other cultures, when you are squeezed close, you overdo conversation. I was startled in Tokyo when people became animated and super friendly in a crowded elevator. And I realized it was a culturally agreed way to get rid of tension. So we could indeed be, so Seoul actually could be onto something here, not indeed, not just improving congestion, but improving social interaction. That's one way of dealing with it. You either isolate or connect more. Um, just tell us a little bit more about the, the, the general purpose of, of tubes and, 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 and underground systems. Well, I mean, they're so, they're so, I mean, they're, we take them for granted now, don't we? But take us back to their original idea. Sure. And, and they're really old. The, uh, the, the first tube that was working in London was before the American Civil War, which is uh, really impressive. Um, uh, 1850s, I, I think Baker Street was one of the first stops. You can see the beautiful uh, light streaming in. That seems attractive. It's simply because they didn't have good pumps and electric energy for ventilation. Uh, tubes allow cities to expand. Before there were tubes, there were uh, uh, horse-drawn carriages. They would go in straight lines from workers' uh, suburbs, stretched along a little filament sticking out from the city, right into the center of town. And whenever you have tubes and rail lines for commuting, cities look sort of like starfish. There's a big glob in the center and sticky little bits uh, coming out with big empty space between. The moment you add cars to that, then you get suburbs. And what you also get when you have an enormously integrated transport system is... A, a great jump in equality because everybody from all walks of life, as long as the, the, the price of entry onto the system is, is, is accessible, everybody uses this and everybody mingles together. That wasn't always the case, was it? Totally, totally, totally. Um, uh, it, uh, when people would have, uh, when horses were expensive, some people would walk through what came out from the back of horses. Other people were on top of the horses going along happily and safely. A little bit like our private jets versus uh, crowded airports for the masses. Um, briefly, it's not just tubes in Seoul that 
are being considered for standing room only. There is mention somewhere about aeroplanes. Now, tell us all about that. Oh, so there's terrible diagrams that you could see. Uh, it turns out in airplanes also, you know how the seats are getting smaller and smaller and squeezing people in. The ultimate thing is everybody stand vertically, leaning against some sort of uh, back pillar. And there have actually been designs for that. You could squeeze a huge number more people into a given airplane. Uh, the, the weight limitation really isn't the problem. The limitation is the uh, space. Um, for flights under two hours, the question is, would people uh, be willing to stand and lean like that for two hours if the price is 30 or 40 percent less? David Badonis, thank you very much indeed. Quite like to see that. Right, that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Vincent McAvinney, Carlos Rabello and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and to our researcher, Neoma Equa and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at Midday here in London. I'll be back with The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> 